Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're called to love, as we discussed last week, in this way. That is the way we're called to love one another. And we talked about that the reason that God gave us that is because we are people who need patience. We need people to have patience with us. We need people to be kind to us. We need people to be merciful towards us. We need people to hope all things and rejoice in all things and endure all things with us, don't we? Because we are stubborn sinners. <laughs> we are stubborn sinners. We are called to love one another in such a way that the world knows that we are the people of God, but yet we are absolutely prone to and capable of falling into sin. So the question that we look at this morning is, is to me, a, a heavy question. It's a question that, that is important. It's a question that I believe can absolutely determine the integrity and the direction of our church and how effective we are in displaying God to the world in the way we love one another. And this is the question, is what do we do when love is tough? What do we do when a brother acts in a sinful way towards us? Do we follow the pattern of the world? Do we do the same thing that the world does? Do we slander one another on social media? Do we write a scathing blog post? Do we cancel a brother or a, or a sister because our friendship has been hurt? Do we cancel that friendship? Do we cancel the support of that brother? Do we unleash a verbal onslaught, voicing our opinion in a relentless effort to win the argument? That he who speaks the loudest has to be right, so do we speak the loudest? How do we respond? How do we respond? My answer to every one of those questions would be no. We are the people of God and we will not respond in a way that is following the pattern of the world. We are the people of God and we will respond in a way that glorifies God that looks different than the world around us. See, this question, what do we do when it's difficult to love one another, it's not a new question. It's not a new issue for the church. I, I remember the day when two prominent leaders in the church came into a point where love was difficult. Two men who had respective ministries Two men who were known for their passion for the gospel, who were known for their intensity at making sure the integrity of the gospel was maintained, the truth of the gospel was maintained. People loved them. They appreciated them. They followed them. They sat and they listened to them. And the day came in which one of these men kind of departed. One of these men became more concerned about the the opinions of man than he was the integrity of the gospel. So much so that, that he was known for hypocrisy. He was living a hypocritical life and, and those who watched him, were there, they were being hindered in their faith. Even other leaders in the church were being led astray. 
And so this contemporary, this other leader, he had a choice to make. Would he watch it happen? Or would he confront his brother? Would he go to him and call him out for his sinfulness? Would he call him out for departing from the gospel? Or would he sit back and watch and hope for the best? Would he cancel him? Would he unleash that verbal onslaught upon him? What would he do? Well, praise the Lord that Paul confronted Peter. Praise the Lord that Paul said, If you, one of God's people, live in freedom of Christ, not bound to the law, how can you force those you teach to be bound to the law and legalism? Praise God that Paul was willing to step into a tense moment, a tough situation, a difficult conversation, and confront his brother. Praise God for Paul's courage, for his love, for his concern, for the integrity of the gospel. What are we going to do in that moment? What are we going to do when someone sins against us? Are we going to shout about the other? Are we going to cast them aside? Are we going to show tough love? Are we going to have a difficult conversation? Is it difficult? Yes. Is it awkward? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Is it loving? Yes. We have to step into those. Unfortunately, we live in a day where on the one hand, people stand on the ready to be offended and they're always prepared to embrace the role of a victim. And so you have this side over here that's ready to jump in there. I've been offended. I'm a victim. I can't take it. I can't believe. I can't. And they just lash out. But then on the other hand, you have people who are characterized by being slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to become angry, who attack, who come at you. And you have these two polarizing sides with nothing in the middle with showing no love to one another. That cannot be in the church. It cannot be in this place. But unfortunately, it's seeped into the church abroad. It's seeped into God's people that, that our habits sometimes look more like the habits of the world, more like the patterns of the world, instead of the pattern that we see in Scripture. God, may that never be of grace Baptist Church. May we always be a church that is faithfully loving Him and one another in such a way that we are willing to love even when it's difficult to do so. So today we're going to look at Scripture. We're going to look at what does Scripture say about loving one another when it's difficult. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at the first two verses. And as you turn there, there, there are a few statements that just simply need to be made. A few statements that you need to know as we go into this, hopefully none of these statements are anything new, but if they are, we need to know them. Number one, no one is immune to sin. There's no one immune to sin, this preacher included. No one is immune to sin. Number two, dealing with sin is both the most difficult and the most loving thing that you and I can do for one another. It is not easy to approach someone who has stumbled into sin, it is not easy to hold someone accountable, but it is the right and the loving and the godly thing to do. We have to do that. Number three, when we think about church discipline, which is the topic, the heading, I guess you could say, for today, we need to understand that church discipline is not merely punishment. It is not merely punishment. When we think and we hear church discipline, I would say most of your minds go straight to punishment. That they're coming down on that guy. They're letting him have it. They're kicking him out of the church. But it's, it's so much more than that. Church discipline is starting right now. 
And it continues every time we sit under the Word of God. Because God's Word is profitable for what? Teaching, correction, rebuke. It is under the Word that we first receive church discipline. I receive church discipline as I sit and I study the Word and I prepare and even standing here to preach. We experience church discipline in a positive and a formative way as we sit under the Scriptures. So it is not just punishment. It is teaching. It is raising up. And fourth, if we're serious about holy living and about loving one another, then we will be serious about dealing with sin in the lives of one another and the church as a whole. We have to be serious about it. You see, a, a failure to understand and apply the four sermons that we've gone through will lead to an unwillingness to apply what we cover today. So I would say if you approach today and you sit under the word that we read today and you go, I'm just not going to do that. It's because you don't understand the call to live a holy life and to love God with all that you are. And you don't truly desire to love one another as God's called us to love one another. If we have the desire to do those things, we will have a desire to hold one another accountable, to spur one another on, to correct one another when necessary. Let's look at Galatians 6. Galatians 6, we'll read the first two verses there. It's Paul's letter to the church and churches in Galatia. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, you, you may or may not know, if you just flip back and look at Galatians, Galatians is a letter in which Paul makes a very staunch stand on the gospel. That salvation is through faith alone. We're not justified by works. He, he talks about the, the value and the importance of the true gospel. That no one should lead you astray from the gospel. It is, it is in Galatians 2 that we, we read the story of Paul opposing Peter. We see his words that we are justified by faith alone, not by works of the law. We go on through, we continue to hear the work of Christ on the cross, and we come to a point in Galatians 5 where Christ talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. That we have been freed from the dominion, the slavery of sin. We have been set free. We hear in the midst of that freedom. This is Galatians 5, 1 through 13, talks about the freedom we have in Christ. And then right after that, Paul talks about the difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. There, there's a clear difference. The two look radically different. If I'm walking in the ways of the world, walking according to the sinful nature, I will look like this. If I'm walking according to the Spirit, I will look like this. We have that beautiful passage of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? You, some of you know the song, the fruit of the Spirit is not a lemon. Do you know that one? No? You don't know that one? No, you are laughing. The fruit of the Spirit is not a lemon. Yeah, okay, I won't sing it for you. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it looks like to be captivated and freed by Christ. That's what it looks like for the Spirit to manifest Himself and His 
fruit in our lives. And so Paul gives us those clear pictures and that leads him to say, listen, in the midst of this, you need to know that if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Should restore him. So he starts out in verse 1 of chapter 6 by saying, brothers, brothers, we have to note that he is writing to who? He's writing to the believers, the saints, the church members, the family of God. He's writing to those who have been saved and adopted into the family who are spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. We would do well when we think about church discipline, we think about holding each other accountable, we think about confronting the sin in the lives of one another. We would do well to treat that as though it were our nuclear family. When something goes on in my house, I don't just go, oh, well, I hope they're doing all right in the back seat. We drove back from Wisconsin yesterday. I think this only happened once, but Steph did say, what's going on back there? Right? We're on top of it. We don't let them just fight it out in the back seat and go, well, hope it's going all right. No, we deal with stuff, right? I know where my daughter was last night. I know where my son was last night. And if they're not where they are supposed to be, I check on them and I call them to account. I care for them. There's times where we have disagreements. There's times where... I react in an ungodly way. And my family holds me accountable to that. We treat one another with love and we confront sin in one another's lives because we love one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are do that as a church. Then he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, here's the problem. That one of us in our midst might be caught in a transgression. Caught simply means to be overtaken or surprised is the, the feel of that word. Is someone suddenly ensnared by sin? Someone suddenly falling into sin? Again, sin can come upon any believer. No one is immune. Temptation crouches at our door every morning when we wake up. And Peter tells us that every day as we go about our day, this Satan is in our midst. He's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. No one is immune to sin. No one can step it aside and say, I'm not sinning. We all can stumble into sin at any moment. He says, if anyone is caught, anyone stumbles, anyone is overtaken or surprised by any transgression. Key words can be small words, right? Any transgression. Paul does not say by a significant transgression or a serious transgression or a transgression that would really bring a lot of shame. No, he says any transgression. He's not dealing with just the major sins, but any sin that entraps a brother and sister. We have to be aware of those sins, the the sins that that Jerry Bridges writes about in his book, Respectable Sins. Those sins that we would say are little, that are no big deal, that we'd be tempted to just turn our head around from and not look at. We've got to be aware of those. I need you, church. I need you to observe my life. I need you to observe my my walk with the Lord, my words. And if you sense a covetous heart in me, I need you to confront me. If you observe bitterness growing in my heart at someone, I need you to come and lovingly call me away from it. If you hear me speak what is untrue, if you hear me gossip, if you hear me say what is unwholesome, I need you to come and hold me accountable. And I need to be doing the same with you. We need to confront one another. We need to deal with sin in one another's lives. Here's the question, I think. Is how do we know? 
How do we know when someone is caught? How do we catch them, right? We're not, we're not walking around. I'm not like patrolling Facebook hoping to catch someone. I'm not walking the halls, looking around the corners, standing around the corner trying to hear Kevin and Kent talking. Maybe I can catch them. That's not what it is. How, how do we know? How, do, how is someone caught? Is it, is it not judgmental? Is it not disobeying the, the admonition to judge not lest you be judged? For me to observe and to, to go, well, is, is Derek living in sin or no? Is Vertrees walking with the Lord? Is Mike pursuing Christ? Is that not judgmental? Here, here's what we have to understand. Is that we are called to hold one another accountable. We are called to discern based on the truth of Scripture. The, the difference between church discipline and just being judgmental is that church discipline is the loving confrontation of sin. Ungodly judgment is the condemnation for sin that heaps guilt upon one another. One focuses on love and restoration while the other is focused on prideful rejection of another person. Now, who is Paul talking to here? Where did we start? Galatians 6.1. Who's he talking to? This is not a trick question. Brothers. He's talking to the church, right? Right? He's talking to the church, the people that we're called to love in a very special and a very particular way. Turn with me for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul makes a very important case, a very important distinction here that we need to be aware of. We think about holding one another accountable. We think about calling people to walk with the Lord and discerning whether or not they are. Is that judgmental? Should we be doing that? In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul deals with, we won't read the entire chapter, but at some point you should read it if you haven't. Paul's dealing with a, just a blatant, gross situation of sexual sin within the church. And, and he draws a very clear line. Let's, we'll pick up in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here's his distinction, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen, here's the bottom line of what Paul says here is the lost are going to live like they are lost. The, the lost are going to live exactly the same way that you or I would live were it not for the Spirit's work in our lives. Listen, if it was not for the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, I know I would just be wallowing in sin. Thanks be to God that by His grace, He saved me and He's redeemed me. And He pulls me away from that. That His Word guards me from sin. That His Spirit draws me to Himself. 
That he leads me to pursue his way out when temptation comes upon this common to man. That his, his spirit would lead me to see that, that I can tempt it here, but there's a way out that God's provided. And I'm going to flee to that way out. I'm going to pursue the Lord. I'm going to run to the Lord in that moment. Paul says the lost are going to live like they're lost. But Paul's making clear that the saved should live like they are saved. The problem comes when the saved are living like they're lost. That's the problem. When that happens, when that comes upon any one of us, someone needs to step in and say, Brother, you are not pursuing Christ. You're not living for the Lord. You're aware, right? You're aware of this. You're aware of the commitment that you made in our church covenant. Listen, read this with me. It's going to be on the screen here. You, you made this commitment to one another. When you stood before the church body and said, I covenant with you, you said that we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. That, that's the commitment that you made to me. That's the commitment that I made to you. That, that in the event that, that I am in sin, that you have made a commitment to come and to show affectionate care and watchfulness over me. That you would faithfully admonish and entreat me as occasion may require. So it should not shock me. It cannot. It must not shock me that if I stumble into sin and in what I say or what I do, whatever it may be, that one of you would approach me and say, Brother, I love you, and I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your walk with the Lord. Do we take this statement seriously? Is this truly something that we've said to one another? Is this truly the, the partnership that we have with one another? This isn't something just manufactured for our church. This isn't something that, that we're just pulling out and saying we have to do this because it would be great if we do it. No, it's something that we have example upon example of in Scripture. We have the example of Galatians 2, 11-14 where Paul confronts Peter. Why? For hypocrisy. Because Peter is living a hypocritical life. We have the example of Philippians 4, 2-3 where Paul confronts Yodia and Syntyche. Why? For disunity. For disunity among the body. We have the example of 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 19, where Paul says to Timothy to confront divisive, irreverent words in Hymenaeus and Philetus' life. Divisive words, irreverent words. Confront them. Don't let them continue. 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Paul calls Timothy to, to watch over and to beware of those who depart from the faith. And he names them. Hymenaeus and Alexander have departed from the faith. And you must deal with that. You don't sit back and ignore it. You don't pretend that it does not exist. You lovingly move forward and confront. Paul then goes on to say, back to Galatians 6. Paul goes on to say that you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual. Now some, some, some of you are going, whew, all right, I don't have to do this because it says you who are spiritual and I'm not really spiritual, right? All right that's a, my get out of jail free card there. Well, 
The problem with that is this. Is that contextually, Paul has made the case in Galatians that you either walk by the Spirit or you don't. If you're a child of God, the Spirit indwells you. And so when Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's talking about you who are believers. There's no separate class of Christian that carries out church discipline. It's not like Paul saying, listen, you who are spiritual and the pastors are the ones that are really spiritual, so you just leave that up to them. No. If you are here and you claim Christ, you follow Christ, you've been redeemed, the Spirit dwells within you, you are spiritual. And you are called to hold one another accountable. You are called to pursue Christ in such a way that cares not only about your own walk, but the walk of your brothers and sisters. You're called to care about the testimony of the church. You're called to care about how we project ourselves to the world, not because we want to make the name of Grace Baptist great, but because we care about the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. You're called to care about the fact that God says we are a holy nation and that we are called to be holy as He is holy. You're called to care about that because you are spiritual. The Spirit dwells within you. You have the responsibility. And what is your responsibility? You who are spiritual should do what? There in verse 1, we're still, verse 1 should do what? Should restore him. Should restore him. This is the goal and the purpose. When we think about church discipline, this is our goal, is restoration. Our goal is to restore, to repair, to mend, to, to bring someone back to the way they were originally intended to be. Your goal is to restore them to, to who God made them to be, who God called them to be, to restore them, to mend them. The goal is not to remove, it's to restore. It's not to ridicule, it's to restore. The goal is not to reprimand. The goal is to restore. We are called to restore our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do so in what? In a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. The, the manner of approach is important. We're not to be harsh. I'm not to browbeat someone. I'm not here to just manifest and heap guilt upon them. To go, oh, I know they feel bad now. I confronted them on it. Now I'm going to make them really feel bad. Now I'm really going to let them have it. My goal is not to stand up here and to call you out and call you out and call you out. Just to call you out in front of the church and to be harsh. No, my goal is to restore you and to do so in a manner of gentleness. I, I so appreciate the times that, that brothers have come to me broken. And you can tell they don't want to be there. But they come and they say, brother, when you said that, it was hurtful. I am so appreciative of those moments because the way they approach me, the way they come in gentleness and kindness, the way we confront one another can make all the difference in the world. Remember, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. See, we meet sin not with sin. We meet sin with godliness. 
So we confront sin in gentleness and in self-control and kindness and patience and love. That's how we meet sin. We meet sin with godliness. But how do we go about doing that? (laughs) What does that look like? What does it look like? There's two things we want to look at. The process and and the tool. The process is Matthew 18. If you want to flip over to Matthew 18, I'm sorry I'm, I'm taking you all over Scripture this morning, but this is important. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus has given us the process. What does it look like? How do we go about doing it? We, we're called to restore. We're called to do so in gentleness, but how? How? What's the process? What's the method? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The goal is restoration. The goal is that your brother would listen to you, that he would repent, that he would turn. So so Jesus says, listen, here's the process. The process is one person goes. One person. So so my responsibility is not just go, oh, I I saw Michael in sin, so now I'm going to go tell you, 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 and you, and we're going to talk about it. Or we're gonna, I'm going to go and tell Kevin so that Kevin can go and talk to him. No. My responsibility is to go address Michael. To go talk to him. To sit down with him. And my goal is what? It's the same as in Galatians 6.1. That he would listen. That he would return. That he would be restored. That he says you would gain your brother. That's my goal. The goal all through this is that he would turn. The goal is not to advance to the next step. The goal is not to kick him out of the church. The goal is that he would be restored and that he would walk in faithfulness to the Lord. But in that moment, if he does not listen, he does not repent, he does not turn, then we have the responsibility to take someone with us. To bring someone alongside and say, listen, I have talked to Michael. I've confronted him and he's still living in sin. Would you go with me and let's talk to him together? Would you make the appeal to him with me? Would you call him to repentance with me? And so we both go in gentleness and we, we speak to Michael again. Michael repents. We've won our brother. He's restored. But if he does not, then we bring the issue to the church. We bring it before the church family, before the body. And we tell it to the body. We don't just go, okay, he didn't listen to, to me and Kevin, and, and so now he's out of here. No, at that point we bring it to the church body, and the church body comes alongside, and they pray for him, and they approach him and call him to repentance. There's a time stamp here. I don't know what it is, but there's a time stamp that we have to be patient. We have to call a brother to repentance as a church. And at that point, that point it's just a difficult statement 
At that point, it's just hard that if the brother is not repentant, then they must be removed. That, that's hard. That we would have to look at a brother and say, if you're not going to repent, then we're going to treat you as a tax collector. As an unbeliever is what that means. And how do we treat unbelievers? We love them. And we sit down with them and we dine with them and we reach out to them and we share the gospel with them. It is not a situation where we go, you're gone and we will never approach you and we will never speak to you again. It's a situation where we continue to pursue them. We continue to reach out to them. We continue to invite them. If they show up in the door, we're not going, (gasps) they're not supposed to be back. No, if they show up, we embrace them and we love them. We say, oh, we love you and we want to see you in our midst. We want to see you turn to the Lord. Would you please turn to the Lord? John John gives us a really clear indicator or or line here that I was studying. I I think the question, I, I try to anticipate questions that you might have, and I think the question that would come to mind for me or has come to mind, I guess, is, is why is this the end? Why, why do we have to say we're going to remove you from our membership? Why would we say that? John says in 1 John, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Why is that the necessary last step? Why is that what has to be done? Because if the person will not turn from sin, then the testimony of their life is that they are not following Christ. The word is not in them. They are not of the light, but they are walking in darkness. That's the process. The tool is what we meditated on, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Discerning what is sin and what is not a sin is not based on my life or your life or anything like that. We don't compare ourselves and go, well, they're doing better than us, so they're okay, or they're not doing how we should or how we say we, they should, and so they're in sin. No, the, the test, the measuring stick is, stick is Scripture. That all of Scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12 says that Scripture reveals sin and is capable of cutting all the way to the heart, something that we cannot do. My words alone cannot cut to the quick. Only Scripture does that. So Scripture is our tool. Scripture defines sin. It reveals what is sin. I don't. My style, my preferences, the things I like, is not the measuring line for sin. Scripture and Scripture alone is the measuring line for sin. We don't add on extra biblical sins. That is legalism. But we don't neglect and ignore biblical sins. That's liberalism. We pursue Scripture, we stand on Scripture, and we abide by Scripture. It is the tool to follow the method that Christ 
gave us. Very quickly, we'll wrap up. I just want you to note the posture. I want you to note Galatians 6, the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. Paul doesn't deal with the posture and the attitude of the one in sin. He deals with the posture and attitude of the one who confronts sin. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He says that our posture must be one of humility, that we would keep watch on ourselves. This is the same thing that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 when he said that, that no temptation has come upon you that, but which is common to man. When he says that, the warning he gives is let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We have to be humble. We have to know that when we see a brother or sister entangled in sin, when we see someone fall, we have to look and go, wow, that is a warning sign that I could do the same thing. I could be right there. I don't think anyone wakes up and goes, you know what, I'm just going to run off a cliff into sin today. Much more common are these little baby steps, these little unresolved sins, these little any transgressions that we don't worry about, that we set aside, we ignore and we keep taking these baby steps until all of a sudden one day we're standing over here and we used to stand there. We're not pursuing the Lord. We're pursuing worldliness and our own sin. We have to maintain a spirit of humility. The second area for our posture is love. That our posture would be one of love that we would want to bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Do you remember last week the new commandment that Christ gave unto us? That we would love one another as He has loved us. The law of Christ is that we would love one another intensely and beautifully, committed to a covenant with one another, that we would care for one another so much that we would not look down at, scoff, slander, gossip about one who has sinned, but we would come alongside them and bear their burden with them. That we would fulfill another statement, our covenant, that says we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We bear one another's burdens and sorrows when they have cancer, when they're struggling. We rejoice when they have the birth of grandchildren. But let us not only be those who rejoice in those physical mountaintops and valleys. Let us be those who rejoice when we see a brother or sister walking in godliness and pursuing the Lord and loving Him and growing in their walk with Him. But let us also be ones who have, are filled with grief and sorrow and come alongside and bear the burden of one who is struggling in sin and, and caught in sin. May we come alongside one another. We need to be that church. We need to be those people. I, I come back coaching. I, you know I coach cross country and coaching teaches you a lot. And it's reminded me of the importance of different types of encouragement. That there are times where tough love means encouraging a runner who's struggling. Who's hunched over because they can't run anymore. And you just come alongside of them and encourage them. Instead of running past them and going, golly, you're out of shape. Or it's a time where you come alongside one who makes a mistake. Or the runner who at the end of the race gets sick and walks off the course. You don't come down in harshness and reprimand him and say, what were you thinking? Come alongside and you help him in his moment of need and care for him and gently correct him and say, next time, <laughs> be sick across the finish line. 
But there's sometimes where you absolutely have to correct and confront one. For us in cross country, that means you get to do burpees. You come alongside them for the health of the team, for their own success and their own pursuit of their goals and reprimand them. Listen, as the body of Christ, we need that. We, we need to be a church so committed to holy living and God's glory that we hold one another accountable and we spur one another on and we're willing both to give and to receive tough love. It is not easy, but we have to be the church that makes a difficult choice to love well. We have to look different than the world around us. We have to be a church that depends on God's enabling, sustaining grace to be who He has made us to be and who He's called us to be. And by His grace, Grace Baptist will always be that type of church. We will pursue holiness and we will love one another that well that we will speak love and correction and encouragement and rebuke when it's necessary. Let's pray. Father, I, I come to you, God, and God, I confess this is just a difficult area of our walk. God, some of the most difficult days in my life has been when I've had to confront someone or I've been confronted. But God, I've been so thankful for those days. God, they've produced such joy and they've, they've helped me to walk closer to you. And so God, in the midst of the reality that it is difficult to love one another well at times, God, I pray that we would walk into that difficulty. That we would be willing to show tough love when love has to be tough. God, not so that we can look down upon someone, not so that we can ridicule or gossip. God, but so that a brother or sister might be restored to walk in faithfulness to you. And God, we need wisdom in this. God, we need discernment. We need to know how to approach a brother or sister in Christ. And we need your spirit in our lives. Your fruit born in our lives, God, to be kind and loving and gentle. To exhibit self-control when we might be angry or hurt to speak in a loving manner. So God, would you enable us to do that? God, would you continue to mold and to shape this local body of believers into a body that loves one another well, who is committed to one another because we're committed first and foremost to you? God, we commit ourselves to you. We commit this local body to you for your glory. God, make us who you Lord Jesus, our head, want us to be. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song that is deeply encouraging after having to think about sin, right? Is that His mercy is more. Let's stand and let's sing of the mercy of our grace.